Hello and welcome to Movie Fixers, the show where we don't just critique movies, but talk about how they could be, gee, I don't know, maybe just a little better. I'm your host, Tony, and with me as always is the queen of the runway, the devil in the details, and my favorite small town girl trying to make it in a big city. <laughs> Matt, that's me, and I'm here. <laughs> how you doing, Matt? Uh, I'm doing really, really well. I... I, I, I literally just do these episodes now just to see what you're going to come up with at the beginning. I do try my best. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of trying our best, that kind of is a theme for the movie we'll be discussing today. Definitely. Uh, definitely falls in there. Uh, we've got our uh, property scout, Jessa Ducci, back to talk about the movie. Do we want to introduce it first and then cut to her? Uh, yeah, just I'll just say real quick, thanks for everybody that voted in the poll. Uh, in the last episode, we presented two movie choices, and we actually got a decent amount of feedback, which was really great. Uh, and I hope you guys enjoy what we're going to do. But yeah, let's let Jess go ahead and introduce the actual movie. All right. Hey, guys, I'm happy to be back. Uh, so you guys decided to take a look for prospects in other neighborhoods. That's awesome. Fantastic. Uh, today, we'll be cruising through the breezy blocks of the sacred dramedy. That would be drama mixed with comedy for all those not in the know with the industry lingo. In this sector, casting can be a very important factor. And in The Devil Wears Prada, we have Anne Hathaway playing the lead, Andy Sachs. We have Meryl Streep as, you know, the devil wearing Prada, uh, Miranda Priestly. Uh, Stanley Tucci, who is just a treasure uh, he plays the sort of well-meaning, snarky, right-hand man, uh, Nigel. And in her breakout role, uh, Emily Blunt, playing the snarky first assistant, Emily, which is pretty handy. Emily Blunt, Emily, anyway. Meet Andy Sachs, a plucky, innocent fashion disaster with hopes and aspirations toward being a serious journalist. She and her friends are just trying to make it in the big city at their various careers when she gets an interview at the most renowned famous, illustrious fashion magazine out there, Runway. Okay, that's enough of that trailer voice. Okay. She's not into fashion, uh, but she knows it could be a stepping stone for greater jobs, so she goes for the uh, for the interview. Emily, the snarky assistant to bigwig Miranda Priestley, laughs off the possibility of such a fashion ignoramus being Miranda's assistant. But, oddly, Miranda decides to give Andy a chance. Uh, she's thrown in the deep end and keeps struggling both as a personal assistant to picky, unreasonably demanding devil boss lady and as a know-nothing in fashion. Emily's always around to kick her while she's down, gloating about Fashion Week in Paris, which only the first assistant will attend, you know, her. And Nigel, the right-hand man to boss lady, gives snarky yet sage wisdom to Andy along the way. Miranda makes a glorious speech about the importance of fashion and how much Andy just does not know. And just as Andy starts getting her feet under her as a competent assistant, she makes a giant blunder by not being able to get Miranda out of a, out of Miami during a hurricane. Yeah, because I mentioned unreasonable, right? Yeah. Uh, Miranda thinks she must be an uncaring slacker because she couldn't complete the impossible task. And Andy goes to Nigel for advice. She's feeling very down on herself and very sad for herself. Uh, she feels like she's doing everything she possibly can but he points out that actually she's put zero effort into trying to understand the fashion industry. Um, he helps her out with a makeover. I feel like that's like really necessary in a dramedy, by the way. This sort of makeover scene. Uh, it, it, it's awesome. And once again, she's climbing Mount Miranda to her dream of getting any journalistic job she wants and making valuable contacts along the way. Until she blunders again by going too far into Miranda's home with a delivery and seeing Devil Boss Lady at a really vulnerable moment. A major no-no for Miranda. As a punishment, Miranda gives her the impossible task of obtaining an unpublished Harry Potter manuscript for her kids in less than a day. Or she'll be fired and her hopes of using this job as a stepping stone will be dashed. Everything she will have learned and done and sacrificed for will be gone. Andy scrambles, asks some of her new contacts for the book, and just when she's getting ready to quit and move on with her life because who needs all of this drama and this crap and the serving and blah, a contact comes through and Andy delivers the impossible. Andy starts being more successful at work, but at the expense of her personal relationships, and eventually she even outperforms Emily, leading Miranda to offer an ultimatum. Andy can go to Paris with Miranda, 
effectively cutting Emily out of the biggest event of the season, or she can say no to protect Emily and effectively quit her job, once again leaving her in the category of, I wasted all this time. Andy's trying to tell Emily that she'll be going to Paris, because yeah, there's this like montage, really like, oh shucks, I'm walking around New York, I don't know what to do morally, and then she's making the call to say, I'm going to Paris. Um, when Emily gets hit by a car, that's right, she's in the hospital because she gets hit by a car while running errands for Miranda. At this point, Andy's personal life is up in flames, her boyfriend is broken up with her, and yet she's off to Paris. She has a one-night stand with one of her industry contacts and finds out that there's a plan to knock Miranda out of her position at the magazine. Andy rushes to tell Miranda because she's loyal and she's well-meaning and, you know, she still has a heart. But Miranda already knew, and with her manipulations, she has sacrificed Nigel by cutting him out of a big promotion so she could keep her job. At this point, Andy and Nigel have gotten pretty close, so the revelation that her boss is truly the devil really hits pretty hard here. Even worse, Miranda points out that Andy has become the same as her by cutting Emily out of Paris to keep her job. With this realization, Andy walks away, literally just getting out of the car and walking away from the job, and goes back to New York to make amends. She apologizes to her boyfriend, who graciously takes her back, one of my only nitpicks of this movie, and interviews for a position with the newspaper. When they ask about her year at Runway, they describe a letter they got from Miranda that recommended Andy to any position, even though she's the, quote, worst assistant she'd ever had. Andy spots Miranda outside Runway and tries to wave, but Miranda stays cold as ice as they part on their separate chosen moral paths. So before we get into some of what I'm seeing about this property, I have kind of a funny story to share. It may need some context, so maybe it won't be too funny when I'm done, but let's see. Um, one of my first jobs in the film industry was as a PA in the wardrobe department. Now, for anyone who actually knows me, you'll immediately question that fact because I know absolutely nothing of fashion and have no interest in it. Nevertheless, it's true that the second AD saw fit to stick me with the wardrobe people. Due to my absolute ignorance, which others in the department immediately noticed, my own mother frequently used a quote with me from The Devil Wears Prada when Andy is just starting out and knows nothing of the fashion industry. She's taking a phone message and says, could you spell Gabbana? And the person hangs up on her. Now, part of the funny of that quote is how it's delivered and the context and the fact that Gabbana is a major name in fashion. Uh, and of course, Andy knows nothing of it. I was basically Andy and everyone knew it. It was awesome. Yay. So a little piece of this film and its main character definitely have a place in my life forever. Now, back to the film. Um, to be honest, I've never seen anything particularly weak or in need of renovation about this movie, um, so I don't have a whole lot to assess about the property. Uh, honestly, I usually try to keep it a little vague, uh, let you guys do the fixing, you know? Um, I think the only thing, though, is kind of specific, and it has to do with Andy's boyfriend and her friends. Um, I absolutely loathe that underlying storyline. I think they're kind of awful people. So if you guys address that, that'd be really awesome. But that's more of a personal my preference than just kind of a generalization of what I see going on with the property. Basically, I'm really interested in hearing you guys talk about it and what you'd like to see done differently. Um, <laughs> if I may, how do you take this property in a direction that might elevate it from everyday Andy to something more fashion forward and daring? Right? You got that? All right. Thanks, fellas. Have fun with The Devil Wears Prada. Okay. I think I can say categorically, no one liked the friends in Devil Wears Prada. No, they're the worst. Um, I know Jess was worried she was an outlier. <laughs> I also, I want to thank Jess Aducci for uh, explaining to me what Granada was, because I had no idea either. <laughs> I thought you were going to say for explaining what a dramedy was. She, no, that's that's something I did know, but Granada, I did not. Well, I, I thought she gave a really good recounting. I, I'm pretty much on the same page as her with this, uh, but let's let's kind of get into it. You know, what were your kind of reactions to the to Devil Wears Prada? I I like so much about it, and it's funny because at the end of the day, I just. I'm just kind of meh about the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, the it's cast beautifully well, uh, and everybody owns their parts for the most part. I think we, we've got one guy we'll talk about later that sort of came up missed. And 
I, 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 there are a lot of good themes in here. I just feel like they don't get enough attention or they don't get enough of a spotlight to warrant this being a movie beyond that that is beyond the need of fixing. I think we need to fix maybe what would you think, Matt? The the theme, the the message of the movie. Yeah, uh, I'm on the same page. So I've seen this movie many, many times. This movie, I think, really is iconic and kind of a classic, mostly for those performances that you've already mentioned. And and also, in part, a little bit for the fashions, because the movie really did make an effort with the costuming in this movie. In fact, it earned itself a uh, Costume Design Academy Award nomination for mm-hmm. that effort. It was also, at the time, and I think even now, the... It had the most expensive wardrobe uh, to date in any film. Now, that's not to say they spent the money on the wardrobe. A lot of the big-name brands donated a lot of the wardrobe so that they could be mentioned and shown. But it's still, just if you count up the dollars, it was one of the most expensive wardrobes in any film ever. I, I absolutely believe that. And, you know, it shows on screen, too. Nothing ever feels underdressed unless it's, I think, supposed to feel underdressed. Did you have a favorite wardrobe of anybody? A favorite? Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anything really stood out for me as a favorite. Um, I, I had a least favorite. The very first outfit <laughs> that uh, Stanley Tucci's character, Nigel, like dresses her up in when she first goes back to the office and like turns heads. I, honest to God, can't stand it. I think that's an awful look. <laughs> but it's supposed <laughs> to be the one that, you know, I guess it's it was so in contrast to what she was wearing is probably why they went that route. Um, I liked the thing she was wearing later in the movie a lot more, but um, what about, did you have a a favorite outfit? (laughs) Oh, gee, thanks for asking. Um, I had a favorite article of clothing. She had near the end, a long brown leather jacket that I fell in love with. Oh, I do remember that jacket. I, and, and she had some boots, of course, boots that, that went well with it, but it was really the jacket that stood out to me and, and, and made me drool a little. Yeah. She had a lot of great, she has like a, there's like a, one of the three major montages in this movie. Uh, it's cutting her at different times, uh, uh, commuting to work. And one of the, like, she had this, like, cream-colored, it almost looked like a bathrobe, but, like, a really fancy bathrobe <laughs> that I remember thinking, like, I, I, I get what they're doing there. Like, she's pulling that off. Good for her. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, we could honestly spend a whole episode talking about fashion. I think, weren't we talking about fashion in our last episode a lot? Well, I always try to bring up my favorite uh, wardrobe choices in movies. And audience, if you've listened before, you know for me, usually it's boots. My second is jackets, and my third uh, thing I'll notice is bags. So, Oh, my God. I could talk about bags for a whole podcast. We almost did that. We almost made a podcast about bags. Uh, it, it's still in the works. It's still in the works. But let's, let's, uh, let's move this along a little bit. Let's talk a little bit more about what works for us in this movie. Um, obviously, the fashion was working. You've already mentioned the, uh, some of the performances. Is there any – you want to give out any specific accolades? I love and will always love Stanley Tucci and just about everything he does. But yeah. he he killed it in this in both a comedic and a drama role. Uh, his speech to Andy and Hathaway's character and her like pivotable it's time to start giving a shit moment was mm-hmm. spot on. There was not a thing I would change about it and the way he delivered it because she's over here crying. Why do I never get complimented for the things I do right? They just point out what I do wrong. And he's like, I, I can't say what he said, but he said it perfectly. But he basically said, you're not in kindergarten. There are no gold stars. Toughen up and start act, start giving a crap and then maybe you'll get noticed. And yeah. it's it's one of the themes, honestly, of the film that I really want to really want to bring uh, more light to later when we work on the fix, but he killed it. And of course, Meryl Streep was iconic. This this movie is iconic thanks to her for setting that bar of just tough as nails boss, tough as nails you know character, strong woman. Yeah, I, 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 I she so, she definitely set a, a precedent there. Yeah. So I, I unpopular opinion. I personally find Meryl Streep to be a little overrated in general. Um, I say that because there's just been this window of time where she was in every single movie and they weren't all A pluses for me. And I'm just like, we can chill and like take a step back on Ms. Merrill. That said, <laughs> this really is 
maybe her most iconic role and for good reason you know she got an oscar nomination for this and i think she totally deserved it she could have played miranda Priestly any number of ways she could have played her very like Corella deville and like shrill and screaming and throwing things she could have done like a sort of like weird sociopath crazy person like she could have gone all these different routes and she went to this like really subdued very soft-spoken like i I pity the poor audio guys on this movie um very (laughs) soft-spoken but like cold as ice and steel like performance and it 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 works you know that could have been a bit of a throwaway like side character but she steals the whole movie i mean she is the devil in this movie and like she's the well, most and memorable she part. had she had a confidence that was just there mm-hmm. and it, it really helped when in the few times this movie kind of showed how uh, oh a corporate woman working in, in what is effectively a man's world has to be stronger than every man there. Mm-hmm. She she brought it with grace and, and with certainty. And I think it was that confidence that was behind her her look and everything she said. Wow, I'm really talking her up. I didn't expect to do that. But it mm-hmm. it's so I, I, I bought it a hundred percent. I could see her as a real like her character as an actual person and as a person that I would just be in awe, awe of if I was in the presence of it's, it's really good. Yeah. Um, I think it, it's important to point out that, you know, Anne Hathaway also showed up and did her job. Like she did a great, <laughs> she did a great, like she doesn't really stand out to me if I'm being honest, but she was like, great. She was, you know, she was a, a, a solid a minus for me. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but Anne Hathaway is coming off of things like the Princess Diaries and Ella Enchanted. She was doing a lot more younger crowd things before this, right? Right. This was like her transition film in a lot of ways, because she's still playing kind of a young character, but she's playing like a full-fledged adult in this one. Um, mm-hmm. So this was a big role for her. I did find it a little similar to her role in Princess Diaries. Um, there's just there's a lot of parallels you could draw between the characters, I think. And I think that's the makeover. why I didn't think she was like mind-blowing but she was very good i think Mm -hmm. emily blunt this is like one this isn't emily blunt's first movie but this was definitely her breakout movie um as the first assistant that's kind of training her and kind of the voice or the mouthpiece of the workplace and she's she's good and i you know she's one of the characters in this movie that's actually written pretty well and has some dimension and isn't just like a one-note kind of character and i think a lot of that is because of emily blunt and how decent she is as an actress i thought it was interesting choice that i like that this movie did that in a movie all about fashion there was very little attention given to the models there wasn't like a model character that really stood out and stood up there with even the supporting cast maybe there would be one or two that would get some lines or be like a friend of somebody but they were all sort of models in their own right in the sense that they wore and ate and breathed the fashion. And so so there didn't need to be that. I'm going to posit a theory. uh, And I want to just point out to any listener right now that may be thinking I'm Matt's a crazy person and shouldn't be talking. I'm basing this theory on my experience with TV shows like project runway. Um, I wonder if that's because that's how the fashion industry kind of thinks of models. They're, they're like, props a little bit you know they're not really included in conversation i think that's probably changing more today but i think in the history of fashion models aren't a part of the conversation they're the things you put clothes on and i think that maybe why we don't get any like you said there's no characters that are models in this movie that have any real voice or screen time that's an interesting theory and it made me think of, as soon as you said that, it made me think of Edna Mode from The Incredibles. Edna Mode. <laughs> oh, my God. Miranda <laughs> and Edna, like, together. That would be the best superhero costume ever. Darling. Yeah, I would I would totally be here for that. Audience, um, we need to get on this crossover. Absolutely. Well, anything else you want to talk about uh, that, that was, like, a, a win for you in this movie? I just want to say that, overall, this is... We say this all the time. This is not a bad movie, and there wasn't anything besides the best friends and the boyfriend that were not that was terrible. Mm-hmm. I just this movie fell flat, and I really want to stress that it wasn't bad. And as we go forward, that's what we're talking about. We're not 
when we're not ripping into mm-hmm. oh this was the worst thing ever how could they except yeah. for the the friends and the boyfriend they're the worst yeah i would hope at this point any of you listeners that have been around for more than a few episodes have, have kind of pieced it together when we when we talk about fixing movies i think the the immediate assumption people have is that they're broken movies or like they're not good or we hate them and you know in fairness some of our previous episodes have been on some pretty abysmal uh flicks but I think what we're trying to focus more on in this podcast, and what I think is more interesting to talk about, is movies like The Devil Wears Prada that actually work, are very likable, and you know have a lot going on. But we see, you know, Tony and myself, we see these areas where, like, man, if they had done this differently, or changed this, or added this, this movie could have been a knockout. This movie could have been, you know, really something special. And I think that's the thing we like to talk about the most on this podcast. Mm-hmm. That said, what's the first area that they just they just sort of they sort of whiffed on? Well, I think I, the movie immediately starts. We, we've already mentioned it several times. So the movie immediately starts to kind of show its cracks and and its problems. Uh, it's like the third scene in. Like we see this opening montage of her getting ready, juxtaposed or like in contrast to these other unnamed ladies getting ready and like how much care they put into their fashion routine and makeup and breakfast choice and transportation choice. Like literally all of it's so different from how Andy, the Anne Hathaway character, does it. And then we have her scene when she first goes into this office to to get this this interview. And then we have a scene with her and her friends. It's her and her boyfriend whose name I can't remember right now. It's her and her boyfriend. And I call like, him uh, Baby Zane because he looks like Billy Zane to me if he still had, like, baby face. You better listen to your friend Billy Zane here. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so her, her boyfriend, baby, baby Billy Zane, and then a couple of her friends, and she's telling them about this job that, they, that she's interviewing for, this, which is the second personal assistant to Miranda Priestly, who's played by Meryl Streep. And they all kind of... Uh, weirdly and awkwardly identify what they do for a living and why they like or hate their jobs and then kind of rib on her for like well you just graduated from northwestern and you want to be a writer and like why are you looking at this personal assistant job and she's trying to like explain to them like well if i do this you know for like a solid year at one of the biggest publications in the you know the world then it'll help you know my career and in this first scene, they're not too bad. They're just ribbing on her. They're kind of skeptical of, of what she's saying. But I think it starts to fall apart in this first scene. And then as the movie goes on, it's just it, it, every time we go back to her and her friends, her and her boyfriend, they're they're just so bad. They're badly written. Their motivations suck. Like, they're they're not good friends. And some of them have been friends with her clearly for a long time. Like, they're not oh, we met in college two years ago and we're like really best friends now. Like one of her friends, the photographer, clearly says they've been friends since like childhood. So I don't know. I guess, the again, the main the major thing in this movie that's broken is the way that her friend group and her support structure, because it's also her dad is really like skeptical of this whole thing. Her boyfriend, her best friends, like literally everyone in her life is is telling her how wrong she is for even wanting to pursue this. And I, I think that's that's excessive. I think you can have her dad be skeptical or her boyfriend be skeptical, but like, or her friends be skeptical, but all of them feels alienating as a viewer, really. And all, and it's all the time. That that was the other part. It's it's every scene that the boyfriend, even when he's being, I guess, sweet. I feel like whoever wrote this doesn't know what a sweet boyfriend looks like, but mm. even when he's trying to be supportive, eventually he just comes down and dunks on her. There's a there's a scene where she's getting she's starting to understand the industry and she starts to relate it to what she wants to do in journalism and he's like, "Oh, you're drinking the Kool-Aid now?" and it's like, "Dude, she was coming to you with an actual thing that interests her and you just dunked on her." instantly they're constantly saying that she's all about the the clothes and the shoes when there's no evidence of that anywhere in the movie for us to think and and even though they're telling us that's her boyfriend that she loves so much and these are her best friends one of which she's known forever we've not seen anything to reinforce that mm-hmm. and 
and so they're they're just a plot device that create extra stress on our main character. Yeah, they're a bad make... plot device. Like they're not even <laughs> a good one. <laughs> they're a little. They're just overt, and 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 that's their only function. I did like, and I know you just said this, but I did like the dad trying to dissuade her when she first takes the job, and because that that conversation felt very real to me, I could relate to that. Yeah, um, and I'm sure you can too. Picking film as a degree to go after and your parent is just like really are you sure and then you start doing something like working on the internet and you know making youtube videos and then (laughs) podcasting and then i just i don't understand how this is what you went and got a degree for and i'm like yeah i've had that conversation Uh, this is very honest this is getting too meta (laughs) yeah right she had a she had a really good response listen trust me I know what I'm doing, and mm-hmm. I liked that that scene. And I feel like we got that that judgment there. We didn't need as much of it from the best friends, yeah, and the boyfriend. Yeah, it just would have been nice, even if she had one character that was supportive of her. I mean, we get little bits of it, like surprisingly, Emily Emily Blunt's character, who sort of hates her and is trashy to her is more supportive of her than her friends are like that because she knows what she's going through. Exactly. And also also her success has influence on her success. So Mm -hmm. there's a little bit of that as well. But yeah, I just, I, like I said, even if it was just the one friend who was like, don't listen to all these other people, you know, you just have to believe in your own path and your own self and take, you know, it's so cliche and like super tropey, but it's what this movie needed. It needed that voice. And like, I think they sort of get you with the Simon Baker. Is that his, his, the actor's name? The, the, uh, the other journalist that helps her get the Harry Potter manuscripts. You kind of think for a second, Oh, maybe this guy is going to be the one that like supports her and makes her feel like she can do it. But then you find out even he has ulterior motives. So, it's like, is is the whole point, is the whole theme that all these people are snakes? Like, if that's the point, then it's, it's that point is missed, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, I think a lot of the points are missed. But going back to that character, he, he really fell flat for me as a character. Because on the one hand, you're right. I don't even think it was a secret that he wanted to hook up with her. I don't think he was trying to keep it a secret. Right. And he was offering... He was being very nice and very friendly with her as part of his charm, but he was also never really in any way just a total D-bag. He was, he was just, he, he, he never sold it. He wasn't the charming, good-looking, charismatic guy that he pretended to be, and he wasn't the total D-bag that you, you're waiting for that flip. He was just there. Yeah, he was a misfire, is really what it was. It was like, they the writers had this character... And they ultimately just didn't really know what to do with him. So he he ends up not having a lasting impression on the, the movie, I think. Mm-hmm. And I feel that way about a lot of things. I think that's why we talk a lot about the tasks that she had to do, because those are more memorable than the themes in the story. And it should be the other way around. We remember her trying to find the seventh Harry Potter manuscript, which, while a dated reference, still holds up. And mm-hmm. that's interesting, but that's not a movie. That's an event. Sure. And it was... There's the, the, the Miranda demanding that she finds a transportation back from Miami during the middle of a hurricane while she's trying to like go on a little date with her dad. Like you're right. The, the, the moments, this, the, the actions, the tasks in this movie were more memorable than like any of the real well, then most of the like character development moments. There are definitely some standouts. Um, I think you already mentioned Stanley Tucci's little monologue to her about like you need to show up and give a damn about your job. Like even if you don't love fashion, you need to have an interest in it to work at a fashion magazine. It's like it's such a, a duh thing to say, but it's also something she needed to hear. Like stop looking for. Uh, praise for every little thing you do right and just like do your job and that's what everyone else is doing you're not exactly going out of your way to to praise everyone else for them doing their job well but i think the other the other monologue that really stands out to me in this movie and i I love the way it's written i love the delivery i love the the scene construction all of it is when andy is first in the run through 
uh, before her big makeover. She's still in that blue like sweater. And she laughs when one of the assistants makes a comment about like choosing between two belts because they look so different. And like to the casual untrained eye, they look like basically the same belt. So of course, Andy kind of snickers under her breath and everything kind of just stops in the room. And Miranda reads her about like, oh, you think you're like too good for all this. You think you're above this. You don't, you think fashion has nothing to do with you. And she gives this really honestly, like kind of eye opening and interesting speech about like how the fashion industry works and how that thing that you think that you just kind of casually picked out was a product of several years and lots of jobs of determining like what was in until it, it trickles down from like major fashion runways to the dress barn down the street. And again, I think her delivery is iconic. I think that scene is, is pretty much single-handedly what got her the Oscar nomination. I think that message too, and and the way that message is just accepted as fact, is is something that really makes this movie feel like it could have a lot more gravitas than it that it it finally committed to. And what I mean is, we're saying that all of our clothes that we wear, whether we care about fashion or know what Granada or Prada is, doesn't matter. You're being influenced. We're all being influenced. If you live in the the first world culture that we live in, you can't help but be influenced by the by the fashion that you wear. And you're influenced does, whether you realize it or not. Right. And, and just that she called her out for the clothes you wear are your statement too. Don't pretend like you don't do that. And if we accept that, then that's something we've got to think about. Wow, we're really driven in a lot of ways by fashion. And that that could have been something I thought would have been way more interesting to see explored deeper. I guess it wouldn't have been a dramedy in that case, maybe more of a drama. Mm-hmm. But it would have been really interesting. The The other thing we see, and I, I've talked about this a lot to you personally, but we, we live in a world where if you want to be competitive and you want to get ahead – you have to sacrifice your personal life. You have to sacrifice your physical health. You're, you're supposed to work well over 40, 80-hour weeks, 100-hour weeks, and that's just expected of you if you want to be successful in anything that's competitive. And that's just a fact. Mm-hmm. And that would have been, and that was explored to an extent, but there wasn't any epiphany. There wasn't any, it was just this is continue story it should have had more more of an emphasis in this story and maybe it would have adjusted the tone but i I don't think it would have because i think at the end of the day we all know that any any of us who've ever worked a job or haven't worked a job i don't know how else to put it any of us who live in a first world country realize that the competition to be that level of successful is so high it's nigh unobtainable unless you sacrifice everything else about your life. And that's that was sort of what was happening, but we never really emphasized it. And I would have liked to have seen more of that. Yeah, that's really interesting. You're, I, I think you're actually hitting on an even broader thing is there's all of the the like morality tale of this movie needed to be fleshed out more. You're, you're right. It, it would have been nice to, to see maybe another conversation, to have a more visual representation, maybe, of the influence that fashion has on our lives and how we're not, like, none of us are really, truly exempt from it. Because even if you choose, you know, that, you know, in your mind, you're not participating in fashion culture. So you're just going to wear blue jeans and a white t shirt. That in and of itself is a statement as to who you are and what you're choosing to present to the world. Well, and, and the reason that blue jeans and white t-shirts are an option is the influence of the fashion industry. Sure. Yeah, you're totally right. And like down to the cut of those jeans and the cut of that shirt. And, you know, those aren't blue jeans. Those are <laughs> cerulean jeans. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I think you're really onto something here with elaborating more on these morals and themes. So we've got obviously the story of fashion and its influence on individuals and a culture what what's another like theme this movie presents or maybe like alludes to but doesn't really elaborate on one of the things i really liked was anne hathaway's character growth i didn't like how again understated it was because we were too busy watching her bumble around from task to task but when she started to care about the job she was in it's not that she loved fashion as much as this is my job I'm going to do a good job at it. When she buckled down, she became so good at the job that 
the she she basically without getting the title became first assistant she was second assistant first assistant supposed to go to paris and miranda decides when i go to paris i need to bring my top team that's you you're coming and there there should have been this this moment where andy ann hathaway's character goes oh wow I'm able to do this because she was, she was kind of always doubting on herself. She thought at the beginning, I, I know journalism. I'm good at journalism. I'm here to do journalism. That's all I'm really good at. And what she learned was, is that when you put your mind to it, when she put her mind to it, she could do anything. And I, I've worked jobs where they weren't film video podcasting. Like I love to do, but when I buckled down and I tried to make it work, I learned what I was capable of. And what I was able to do, despite what the job was. And that growth was so important to my life. And I, I feel like it should be to Andy. It was to Andy, too, but there was no emphasis on that. Instead, what we got was this conundrum. If she goes to Paris, Emily, the sort of rival friend person in the trenches, gets left out. And that's something she's really all about. So Miranda made it very clear immediately because Andy tries to pass on the job and say, you know, pass on the trip and go, no, 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 I can't do that to Emily. She goes, well, either you go or you're effectively telling me you don't want to work here anymore. And then she's supposed to feel bad later. Miranda even tries to guilt her a little bit later that she went. And I'm just like, no, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with what she did. She came here to work this job, to then get her ticket to move on to other jobs that she wants. This is the opportunity that was presented to her. Even Emily, who obviously was upset because she got cut out, I feel like would have understood in the long run because she would have done the same thing. This is the environment that they've set up. This mm -hmm. is the cutthroat world that we have. Instead, they just sort of drop it down to this, oh, she's not being nice now. She wants to be the nice girl. And it's like, yeah, she wants to be nice, but she's also very, very strong, very effective. And she earned that spot. She should. We should be talking about how good she is and how when she, she stops you know, sticking up her nose and looking for gold stars that she actually achieves so much and is so capable. Yeah, we see, we see that a lot in that, in that end when they're leaving and Miranda's telling her all these things to do. And she's like, oh, I already did that. I messengered your outfit to the shoot. I did this. Like, like we, we see in a scene that she's become quite adept at her job. But it's like the the moral of our story feels really murky because she also walks away from the job before she's put in her year of time. But she also, like, you see her go to a job interview and you find out that Miranda did give her a good recommendation ultimately, which, which you know, led to her getting the job she really wants. So, like, it was effective, I guess, but also she didn't quite follow through exactly it, it's all i don't know I, yeah everything that, doesn't have to be problem. tied up in a nice little bow but it also could stand to be a little clearer what they're going for what they're trying to say with this story the consequences to the actions taken don't necessarily add up and mm -hmm. And a story that that needs to be a little bit clear like you said it doesn't have to be tied up with a bow but if she got lucky then we need to understand that Miranda just had a soft spot for her and she got lucky and gave her the good recommendation. Or if she was supposed to, if she left because she decided I want to maintain a certain, certain self that this sort of competitive world just won't allow. And so I'm going to suffer the consequences of that, meaning I'm going to have to struggle harder to get where I want because I'm not going to step on other people. Then we need to see that instead because that's, that's believable. That's reality. That that's that's not just tying it up to look pretty. Instead, she basically got the speech. We're not we're not so different, you and I, from Miranda, and then walked away from everything because she didn't like that, and that sort of countermines all of this growth. I feel like she had, even though even though we do learn that Miranda herself is not a devil, and at no point did I ever think she was. She was just doing what was necessary to work in that kind of environment because that's what that environment demands. Not only work in it, but succeed and be the head, the strongest in that kind of environment. Yeah. I do think that the, you're hitting on something interesting. The one theme that I think did come through and was, was ultimately like well executed was the, the idea of like not judging a book by its cover because from the beginning you're presented with 
um, all these characters, mostly women, that you you make all these assumptions about for various reasons, for, from things they say to the way they're dressed to the position that they're in. Um, and then ultimately, as the movie develops, you find out there's so much more to these people than meets the eye. So I think, you know, it's not like the movie was a failure thematically. It was definitely hitting some home runs and, you know, getting some base hits. I don't know why I'm making sports references right now. Who am I? Um, but we, we could have had better execution on some of these other themes. They failed to catch the snitch. They did. There you go. Thank. Ooh, I was, I was, I was getting too sportsy. I was, I was honestly getting what, heartburn. That's, that's a sport. Quidditch is a sport. It is a sport. Sort of a sport. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so we've we've definitely hit a lot of interesting points of what works, what doesn't. Let's bring it home. Like, what's our fix for this movie? I feel like it's pretty clear, but you know, from your perspective, what's the fix? The big fix on this one? I want to see more emphasis on the growth of Andy mm-hmm. and and how how that's a good thing, even if she does decide to leave before the the year is up and, and burn that bridge. I want to see the consequence of that. Even, mm-hmm. you know, something interesting just occurred to me that we just talked about in our previous episode, when we talked about an attack of the clones is because we, ha- we don't have anyone that's like on Andy's side. Really? We don't have a like sounding board for where she is at any time. We talked in the last episode about like, because um, Padme never has like a handmaiden or a friend or anyone. It's literally just her and Anakin. We're never in her head. We never hear like what she thinks about what's going on, what she thinks about Anakin. And we kind of lack that in this movie too. Not as much. Cause we do get a few scenes with Nigel specifically. We get a couple of scenes with Stanley Tucci's character where we get a little bit of her headspace of her character growth, but not quite enough. And I think, if we, like I said, if we made like one of her friends more supportive, like the photographer friend, maybe, then that would be our sounding board. That would be her, you know, drinks after work, venting her frustrations, and but but what her hopes and aspirations still are, how she's changed. And we're just, we're missing those moments. Yeah, and you, you hit on something else really well, too. Nigel was kind of her sounding board, but Nigel had a really impactful character moment when he was supposed to be getting this job and because of Miranda's actions, he's lost it. Uh, she basically screwed him to save herself. And he he sits back and goes, it's okay. She'll repay me in the future. And Andy looks at him and goes, do you really believe that? And this is the part that really stuck with me. He goes, I have to. Mm-hmm. He made a conscious choice right there, or, or maybe he always had, but that's when we understood with his character, it doesn't matter what's right or what's wrong or what's real or what's illusion. He has decided where he's putting his faith. His faith is, is I choose to believe the best option. She will pay me back. And that's how I'm going to move forward from this day to the next day to the day after that. And I was just like, whoa, heavy, good stuff. Like you have to do that at points in your life. Otherwise, you do like, like like so when Anne Hathaway decides to turn the corner and leave Miranda, there was never really that moment of I don't have to or I don't want to. It was just Miranda gave her what I thought was a fairly nice compliment about who she is and how she her brain processes. And she decided she didn't like that. But again, we don't know because there's no sounding board. We just sort of see her face kind of curl up in disgust and she walks away. It just if there was just a, a moment where she really made something out loud to the audience, be it vocally or just more impactful. I don't I don't know, man. Help me out here. If we had that scene with her that we got with Stanley Tucci's character, Nigel, where you see this is the path she's committing down now. And it's not the path that Miranda went down. It's her own. And really sell that. I, I would I would have felt like the the obscurity of the morality would have would have become clear yeah well i think you could restructure the end just a little bit with the simon baker character of her maybe having that moment that epiphany of seeing her becoming like miranda but like the negative version of that right the like the cold distant uncaring that people think amanda or or miranda is and then so then having her 
maybe even have her you know it's actually funny that this isn't how the movie went because if you think about it all the pieces were there for it to go that route when he talks about how like you know Jacqueline is going to take Miranda's job and take him on as the head editor of, of features you know that would have been a moment for her to you know maybe he offers her the job if she betrays Miranda and betrays Emily and all of this and that would have been a growth moment for her to say like no like I'm going to work hard and I'm going to be ruthless when I need to be, but I'm also going to be loyal to people that have invested in me. There, there was never a temptation for her. She stayed fairly true to herself, mm-hmm. but herself was already established in the beginning. The only That's why I say even when she works hard and becomes more successful at her job, there's not even an acknowledgement of it. It was just, oh, she did this. She, she I say she has a character arc. Maybe it, it's it, the arc isn't pronounced enough. Yeah, as an audience to see, there was no temptation. There was no the the other option. The other way this story could have gone, and all the pieces were set up, is she becomes lost in the job for the sake of the job. She becomes hardcore, hardworking, but she loses sight of why she was doing it in the first place, mm-hmm. and that's why she walks away because she realizes this kind of cutthroat, nonstop work environment is not what I want. And it's, I'm definitely not doing what I want. I'm at this point, just doing it for the sake of doing it. And that would have been a lesson that I think a people can definitely resonate with and B make a lot more of an impact when she chooses to walk away from it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's gotten this far. There are all these benefits, but that's not really what she is and what she's about. But instead, none of that really happened. You yeah. could argue to an extent that happened, but the movie does not stress or make clear any of that happened. We have to fish and dig for that. And that, that is not good storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. You, 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 you've really hit it. I think this is the most important takeaway from this entire conversation about this movie is that audiences, it doesn't matter how much action and like shoot em up. It doesn't matter how many hilarious one liners, Like it doesn't, all those things kind of don't matter at the end of the day. If the audience doesn't feel like they walked away, you know, having like learned something or had a moment, like a, a, like I said, like a a morality tale kind of moment, you want your Mm -hmm. good versus evil. You want your friends band together to help you when in a time of need, like you want your takeaway from a movie. And when you don't have that, you have a movie like Devil Wears Prada that had so much going for it, everything going well and on the surface really works, but leaves you feeling kind of wanting a message at the end that you weren't really given. Or a commitment to a message because all of this stuff is arguably in the movie. Yep, It's just not made clear in a satisfying way. You, you call it morality, and I like that term. The other the other term I would use is is the politics, air quotes, of, of your story. I've said this before, but I really believe you can't not have your morality or politics in a story. Otherwise, it's not a story. Mm-hmm. And this is proof of that, because it almost felt like they were trying not to to give all of that attention mm-hmm. or, or give or, or take too much of a stance on anything, maybe for fear of it insulting the fashion industry or something else. I'm sure, not sure. That's a good point. Uh, a, but the fact of the matter is, it's, it's still there. It's still hidden. Now it's just unclear. So mm-hmm. commit to that. I, I always laugh when people say, take your politics out of my story. It's like, no politics are in everything. What you mean <laughs> to say is take your opposing view out of my story. Right. You, everything has politics or everything has morality, whatever you want to call it. Not not necessarily government politics, but some sort of morality or political opinion. And it's it's unavoidable. We're, we're human beings. This We tell stories for this very reason, to look at these things from a perspective that we wouldn't have otherwise if we didn't have fiction. Exactly. I, that's, I think that's where, especially like science fiction and fantasy does really well because it can commentate on very real modern issues while removing itself just enough to not feel like it's beating you over the head. And I think that's where people get confused sometimes. They're like, I can't believe you're putting politics into my sci-fi. And I'm like, have you not (laughs) watched or read any sci-fi ever? (laughs) Ever. Well, but you don't, you don't, I mean, it's really easy to do that in the fantasy sci-fi world, but even in the world of something like Devil Wears Prada, where it's the modern world, it's a facet of the world, maybe a bit glorified or exaggerated for interest it's it's still doable and and 
maybe a bit more challenging, but when you just skimp on it, that's when your movie falls flat. And, and that doesn't matter what genre you are. You have to keep your your morality tale, your themes, your politics clear. Yeah. So to wrap it up, I feel like what we're doing with Devil Wears Prada is we're taking it back to the writing stage. We're going all the way back to, to, to the writing and we're gonna we're gonna shift our, our, our kind of focus a bit. We're gonna we're gonna watch Andy's journey and character arc more closely and more purposefully so that we we feel like we've gone on this journey with her a little bit better and we've seen her change as a person, as a professional, as a you know, as a girlfriend, as all of these things. And it's all kind of buried as it is now, but we want to really emphasize that stuff. Uh, we also want to kind of mix things up a bit with her her support circle. So definitely keep some of her friends. Or lack thereof. <laughs> right. So Sorry. So what should be her support circle? Instead of all of them saying no the whole movie, which is really like this movie is just everyone in her life telling her no over and over again and just one yes voice makes such a difference. So I think we need to have a, a, a boyfriend who's maybe a little more supportive for more of the movie until he's not, until he sees her maybe go to, you know, monster. And then I think yeah. we also need to see one of her, her like friends be more on her side and like, well, I don't know. I'm not going to, I'm not going to say I necessarily understand exactly what you're doing or why you're doing this, but like, you know, you're my best friend and I'm definitely going to support you no matter what you need. Like she needs that sort of unconditional support from somebody in her life. You know, the pillar for that is there too. If you don't mind me going just a little bit in on this, this one point. Yeah, go for it. One of the friends is never negative. So there, there's the boyfriend, there's the old, the photographer friend that they've apparently been friends forever. And then there's the third guy and he's the one that knows all about the fashion. And Matt, I want you to, you told me something really great before we started recording and I want you to talk about this character more, but his character is sort of unnecessary because he's never unsupportive. He's just there to also know about all this fashion stuff. But it's a little weird, and you explained it better. So explain to me what weird you had about this guy. So he's a weird character because he's – I think he's just there as, like, comedic relief maybe, but it's the, the, the wrong kind. So when we first meet his character, he's, he's the one that, like, knows the Versace and knows Prada and knows – like all the different designer names and they're all kind of giving him this look like, how do you know that that's, that's for like women and gays to know. And they're like making fun of him, but it, it's unclear if he's gay or not. I don't think the movie really makes the case that he's gay. I think that I just the, assumed, I thought he was openly out. And then you pointed out to me that they never made that clear. And I was like, Oh my God, you're right. I just, I mean, it's, it's I unimportant because he's either straight and the joke is that straight guys shouldn't know these things or he's gay and he's this sort of weird stereotype. But also, like, if he is gay, then it shouldn't be that weird that he knows these. You know what I'm saying? Like, the way his character is written is so weird. And, like, he would be an interesting character to be the supportive one. Like, don't listen to these guys. You know, they just don't understand. I know I know the world that you're in and I know how cutthroat it is. Like, I think you can do this. He would be an interesting choice to be his, her support structure. But again, he's mm -hmm. written as this kind of one note. Like later in the film, when she's saying that she's going to go to New York or so sorry to Paris Fashion Week, you know, he says, "Oh my God, you're going to meet Giovanni, blah blah blah, and blah 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 blah." And then she goes, "Okay, you're scaring me." And I'm like, "Why are we writing this like this? Why can't she just be like, yeah. yes, thank you, that is a big deal. That would have been a much more interesting scene." Maybe I'm naive, but it was 2006. I feel like the joke that he was either a straight guy into fashion or, you know, closet homosexual was not a joke that needed to be in this film. And it wasn't even really there because, again, it was sort of shrouded in ambiguity. Right. If you were going to go that cliche route, then the joke needed to be like him maybe lowering his guard and not realizing it and then being like, oh, yeah, but, you know, I wouldn't know anything about that. I love sports. You know, the if if they were making a joke, the joke wasn't working, even if it was a cliche one. What if we saw them become better friends throughout because he knew about these things and he could relate to her? That becomes, you've, you've already said this, but he becomes her sounding board and we also watch the growth in their friendship, the two that obviously, or at least from what we see in the movie, are the least connected. Yeah. Oh my God. Another thing we could do with his character, because he says in the very beginning, he's a corporate analyst and that he, like yeah. how much he hates that job is like him being her support 
person seeing her work hard in this industry and, and, and give up everything for a dream in, in, you know, is what encourages him and inspires him to pursue whatever his real dream is. And again, you could go super cliche with it. Like my real dream is to sing on Broadway or, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> like, even if you went the cliche route, at least that's more satisfying than him being a complete waste of space character. And then, yeah, then he's just, he's there and he's gone. And uh, yeah, why even have him in there? The best friend and the boyfriend are doing everything that he's doing anyway. Well, I think what happened is this is based on a book. And I think what uh, my guess, if I were to put some money on this, I would say a lot of these characters were probably much better developed in the book. And in the adaptation, things probably got lost. That would be where I'd put my money. That's a good, that's a good thought. Okay, that makes more sense. And, you know, even but, with the fact, you know, so you said it was 2006, maybe in the books he is gay or in the closet and he has a whole, like, coming out arc or something and the the, the studio decided they didn't want to, you know, portray that. So what ends up happening is characters that have fully, like, realized character arcs or, like, backstories in a novel end up being watered down to the point of, like, why are they even in the movie in the first place? Again, these are all just, like, theories. I haven't read the book, but that, you know, I could definitely see that happening. We've got a potential, yeah, it's a potential Breakfast at Tiffany's moment there. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, I feel pretty good about this fix. You know, I can't emphasize enough. I like this movie. I've I've watched it many a time. So much good in this movie. I've owned it for a long time. It it was certainly not a pick of like, ugh, let's watch this terrible film and rip it to pieces. We just, we like to see, we like movies, Tony and I. And we like to see them all be as good as they can be. And yeah. I think that's what really inspired this podcast. I think we, it, it definitely is. That and the fact that we do this anyway. We're going to have <laughs> this conversation no matter what. If someone wants to listen to us talk about movies, we'll take it. <laughs> Speaking of us talking about things that we love to watch, Matt, is there anything you want to recommend to our audience? I do. I really do. Okay. And I'm going to try. I'm going to do one because I know we always say like, well, I've got two this week. I'm going to give you one this week. Um, there's a show on Comedy Central that just came to an end called Broad City. I think you've maybe seen a couple episodes with with Hayden and myself. Um, I've definitely talked about this show to people before. I think the the two women in the show, um, Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer, are two of just the funniest women alive today, to be honest. And they're series broad city which was based on a youtube series they had done at one point and got noticed and picked up by comedy central for a full show uh just aired their final season uh i think the finale was just a few weeks ago and i just i got to watch that final season recently and it was really really good um if you're a fan of the show already that final season uh did some really lovely nods to early episodes and early characters that i liked a lot a lot of great cameos but yeah it's a fun you know i think tony and i have talked before about how we like to have 30 minute shows in like in our queue because they feel like a little lunch break really nicely they feel they fill a lot of gaps in our day and broad city definitely i is one i'd recommend to, to put in your circulation because you could watch an episode or three episodes and there there's a little bit of an ongoing narrative in that there's things they definitely reference earlier. So you'd want to watch it in order. But, you know, if you were flipping through the channels and just happened to catch that an episode of Broad City was on, I, I would say just give it a watch. You might like it. I Their humor is a little on the crude side. So if you're not used to two young women being a little crude, then it might not be for you. But their timing is impeccable. Their writing is is just razor sharp wit. I, I can't recommend it enough. I really like Broad City. I'd like to touch on that, too, because I have watched it sporadically with you. When I come in town to help film Jake Bakes episodes, mm-hmm. you guys will turn it on occasionally. And my personal opinion is I don't see myself watching this on my own. The humor isn't doesn't really ever grab me but i've never regretted watching an episode i was always paying attention alert and what i would say to everybody watching this maybe try and watch it with some friends because watching it with you and jake always made it better because you two would just crack up and stuff that you know different different tastes i didn't laugh at you two would just love and then be quoting the whole week we're filming and 
it, it would stick with me. It would just stick in my head. And I'm like, you know, if I just saw that by myself, I would have forgotten that line and it would have just gone to the ether. But the fact that, that I watched it with you guys and I got to kind of feed off your energy made it so much more fun. So I would say watch that with friends if you have the opportunity. Interesting. That that makes me want to put this in our queue. I want to, I think I want to do an episode of Movie Fixers talking about like the environment in which you watch things and how yes. like a midnight, you know, rev, you know, premiere of a movie is not the same experience as a Tuesday afternoon movie or a, you know, middle of the afternoon in, in your fully lit home. That's something folding laundry. Yeah. That's something we should definitely have a, have a chat about, but we'll save that for later. What about you? What's your recommendation this week? All right, so I'm going to go on the other side of the spectrum. I recently had a uh, surgery on my foot. It's okay, I'm fine, but I've been laid up on the couch, and I restarted one of my favorite TV shows, which is the show Community. It is another short comedy. It is very uh, self-aware. It, it sort of homages the tropes of all the other types of TV Again, it's not necessarily something you have to watch in order, but they reference so hard and a lot of the jokes are very subtle and there are things in the background that you don't see until you watch it for the fifth time. This is the sort of stuff I love. If everything I'm saying right now just grosses you out, don't watch this show. (laughs) But if if you really just want to fall in love and get into a show this sitcom is one of the best and it honestly it finished sitcoms i don't want to say it ruined sitcoms but it finished sitcoms for me it 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 did everything it acknowledged everything that it did it from and i mean i was a child of sitcoms i watched them all cheers mad about you friends all of them i i can still tell you things that happened in friends i could not tell you what i learned in school that year <laughs> it's you know it's it's funny i'll, I'll my, one of my best friends is when we video game his wife's watching friends in the background and i just start quoting it <laughs> because i can hear it it's crazy but this one is to me the quintessential the end-all be-all of sitcoms done right sitcoms done and it's just so funny if you just like that kind of deep cut homage humor. I, I love this show so much. I can't, I, I could just keep going on. But Community, uh, check it out. If get, get through the first season. It's simple. If you love it, you'll just keep going. If not, I understand. Yeah, it's interesting you say get through the first season because I, I still think that first season is the strongest season of that show. Overall, yeah. It's just it, it definitely every episode has something really charming going on for it. And uh, I don't know, hearing you talk about it makes me definitely want to watch it again. All right. Well, I think that's our our show for this week, everyone. Thank you for listening. Uh, Tony, we haven't picked our next movie, have we? I had a suggestion for you. And if you don't want to do it, that's fine. But I just recently rented uh, The Crimes of Grindelwald, which I'd never watched. Mm. And it was in theaters. And I'm very disappointed. And for a lot of the same reasons... I felt disappointed with parts of Devil Wears Prada. Only I'm more disappointed with The Crimes of Grindelwald. I I would really like to watch that again, uh, not just because it's still in my queue and I've got, you know, 24 hours to watch it uh, again and take notes, but do that one and, and break it down. Do you think it's too soon to do another Harry Potter? Um, no, I don't think so. I think this would be a really interesting episode because uh, a lot of people didn't care for this, this second film in the, the Fantastic Beasts series. Uh, it got worse reviews than the first film, but I came out of it liking it so much more than the first one. And, uh, hmm. I, I definitely would like to, to talk about this. And I think this would be a good one to maybe invite a guest on. I've got someone in mind. I don't want to say their name right now because I, I want to see if they want to do it first and see how you feel about it. But I think this would be a really good episode to bring on a guest, uh, someone that I've already talked to about this movie. And I think they have a, a very solid, um, recounting and and analysis, I think, of this movie. So yeah, um, I'm I'm prepared to say let's do this one next, whether we get the guest or not. I think you and I could definitely tackle this one. Mm-hmm. Well, you think the next two weeks? Yeah, we've been kind of doing an every other week sort of deal. I think we missed last week. We were supposed to do one audience. That was on me. I had a surgery and I was not in the right headspace to talk about product. It happens sometimes. So yeah. Um, 
yeah, let's say about two weeks from from this, we'll we'll go ahead and talk about the crimes of Grindelwald. That gives everybody listening a chance to see it if they haven't seen it already, or watch it again if they want to be prepared. Excellent. All right, Tone, we'll give us the credits. Okay, credits. I'm As always, I am your host, and my co-host is Matt Goad. Executive producers are Kristen Faith and Hayden Smith. Our property scout has made her currently last debut on our show. Uh, Jessa Ducci let us know that while she's been loving this, it's just been a bit of a, a time crunch. She's got a lot of irons in the fire, a lot of conflicts, and asked if she could bow out. And we told her, hey, we weren't exactly paying you. So yes, of course, <laughs> do what you got to do. But I just want to give her a special nod and a huge thank you. She is amazing taking time out to watch these movies, some of which were terrible. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and giving us a, a succinct and, and well done synopsis and plan along with our whole movie fixers home home improvement vibe there i i just really enjoyed that yeah thank and you Jess. Again, thank you so much we, we we love working with you and i hope we do something else with you again soon and again also thanks to her husband who provides our uh, thumbnail artwork and any other artwork we need uh, now or in the future and with that i guess that's our show uh, a special thank you to our listeners. We wouldn't, we w- we'd probably still do this if no one listened, but it's definitely more fun when people listen. Uh, definitely give us some feedback on Facebook, Twitter. Uh, you can email us at contact and only on TSD. Let us know what you think about this episode, past episodes, and maybe any movies that you'd like to see us do in the future. Uh, until next time, this has been Matt and Tony, Movie Fixers. We'll see you next time, everybody. Bye. <laughs>